Our scripture reading today comes from Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11 from the NIV. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labor at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, or the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, life is meaningless. <laughs> We're all going to die and no one's going to remember us anymore. Is that great? Should we just go home? Just wondered. Well, welcome to the book of Ecclesiastes and our new series across our campuses of Life Up in Smoke. And so you may be thinking, hey, this is the Sunday after Easter. You know, what are your teaching team? What are you guys thinking? After such a hope-filled Sunday, Ecclesiastes? Really? Yes, really, actually. Last Sunday, we celebrated the bodily resurrection of Jesus and how we heard so powerfully that death doesn't win our great enemy. But Ecclesiastes is really a good follow-up. Believe me. Hold on just a minute. Because it addresses another enemy more of our Monday lives. And that is the enemy we all face of a sense of meaninglessness. Monday has a way of extinguishing meaning in our lives, and from the beginning to the end, the book of Ecclesiastes wrestles with this matter of mattering, the sense of meaning. Do we really matter? Does life matter? Or is it all, at the end of the day, meaningless? Our present world, with its naturalistic foundations, finds itself, I think, in the best way I can describe it, in an abyss of meaninglessness. American evolutionary biologist at Harvard, Stephen Jay Gould, put it this way. I think it's brilliant how he said it. We are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and very tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter million years ago has managed, at least so far, to survive by hook and by crook. Dr. Gold writes, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. If your life and mine is only the curious results of an evolutionary accident, the only, only logical conclusion is that any transcendent or enduring human meaning is impossible to find. 
But we try, don't we? And we try and we try. Holocaust survivor and brilliant psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, who wrote, I think, one of the most important books in the 20th century, made the compelling evidence that we are meaning-seeking creatures. Let that sink in for just a moment. In his book entitled Man's Search for Meaning, Frankl makes this case. He says, man's search for meaning is the primary motivation in his life. But our late modern world has clearly had a severe head-on collision with meaning. And for all of us to look around, it doesn't take a long time to see the despairing wreckage is everywhere. One of the artists that captures this well of the modern world is Norwegian artist, maybe you've seen some of his work, Edvard Munch. He produced at the turn of the century the picture of the modern world here in one of his most famous paintings. I think you've probably seen it. It's called The Scream, and it captures the despairing reality of the modern world. And notice the two figures who are moving back sort of in the mirage of the distance, indifferent and unconcerned. He is saying on his canvas, the nihilistic modern world has been scrubbed of every meaning possible. And all that is left is the deceptive mirages of meaning that we pursue and chase after. All that is left are deceptive mirages. Ecclesiastes grapples with this reality too. The ancient writer of Hebrews wrestled with this question, as all humans do. Are our lives really meaningless? Or can true meaning be found somewhere, somehow? If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. It's just past Psalms and Proverbs, or check out your table of contents. Look at me at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So here in the opening verses, the writer of Ecclesiastes actually themes with a thematic literary sense the entire book in a nutshell. One that will carry with us throughout the entire series. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Notice how he begins. The English word translated teacher comes from an important Hebrew word called kohaleth, which comes from another word or an idea of a public gathering, the kahal. The idea here in your translation is a preacher, a teacher, but it's very important to grasp that this teacher is recognized publicly, like in a big auditorium or in a culture as having the highest level of intellectual prowess and credibility as he speaks to a larger group. That's the idea. Now notice also with me how this teacher or preacher is placed by the writer of Ecclesiastes immediately in a genealogical historical context here. He is described as the son of David, king of Jerusalem. And this introduction has led many scholars of the Hebrew text to conclude that King Solomon is the Kohalath. And that is my take as well. But the son of David, king of Jerusalem, could be actually another king other than Solomon in the Davidic line. 
It also seems, if you notice the text, that these words of wisdom are being actually presented by another writer that is not explicitly named featuring this Kohalath. But most importantly is the biblical author wants all of us to hear such a credible and wise teacher talk about something that really matters. In fact, matters of ultimate importance. So the question right off the blocks in this literary frame is what does this wise teacher have to say? Now, putting it in our context, I want us to picture ourselves walking into a large lecture hall where a brilliant scholar filled with students, probably freshman students, and the brilliant scholar stands up and, you know, all the chit-chat all of a sudden stops, right? Pin drop silence. So how does this scholar begin his or her words, right? Well, in the text, this is the idea. He comes to the students with shock and awe. They are stunned. They are startled. And he repeats just one word. Notice the text. Meaningless. Meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, the English translations of your Bible may be different. There's lots of words that try to capture the fullness of this idea. Some have vanity, others futility, pointlessness, or meaninglessness. In all these translations, again, that's part of language translation. It's very difficult to have any kind of one-to-one -one correspondence. But I, my hunch is they all have merit. They all get some facets of that semantic meaning. But I'm, I'm going to land my sense the best comprehensive meaning is meaninglessness or meaninglessness. The idea here, this word is presented here in poetic Hebrew idea as a, a metaphor to describe all of human existence. But in other texts, a more literal understanding, when it's literal, is often describing vapor or smoke. Okay? Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message paraphrase, understood Hebrew well. And he brings out the explicit meaning here. He says, it's smoke, y'all. Nothing but smoke. It's all smoke. And then he says, it's spitting into the wind. Now, let's keep in mind that Ecclesiastes is presenting here this idea of havel, that's the Hebrew idea, as this metaphor for all of life experience. So important is this Hebrew word that's translated in the text that I read this morning, meaninglessness. It is listed in the book, watch for this in our series, imagine this, 38 times. <laughs> and we must keep in mind as we enter this text, that Ecclesiastes doesn't come out of a literary or cultural historical vacuum. In other words, Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, the Old Testament has three parts that build onto each other. The first five books, the Torah, then on top of that is the prophets, the Davaim, and then on top of that is the writings. Think about a birthday cake with frosting. This is a part of the writings, the top of it. So it all builds on that. Keep in mind that Ecclesiastes has all these foundations underneath it. The Hebrew wisdom literature is infused with the present reality of God, and it draws deeply, and this text draws deeply on God's design and desire of human flourishing in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, particularly the book of Genesis. So I want you to keep that in mind in the series. We're going to hear hints and see hints of Genesis pop up in the text throughout Ecclesiastes, because Genesis is everywhere under the text. You'll see hints of the Garden of Eden surfacing, so watch for them, okay? The teacher is presenting to us early life, human life outside the Edenic Garden. 
That is a post-fallen world that's fleeting and frustrating. He will use language of our pursuits of passion. He will call them strivings. And if we see them only through the lens of a temporal horizon, it's like we are trying to hold on to smoke or vapor. It all slips through our hands. Poof. And not only that, he says, life we experience now in a fallen world, outside of the Edenic garden, is often, and you're going to see this through the whole book, it's often, it's an enigma, it's filled with dripping ironies, it's presenting us seeming contradictions and very puzzling paradoxes. And you will notice right away about this book, the writer of Ecclesiastes is very provocative. He's in your face. He won't let you dismiss him or conveniently push him aside or he presents to you this tension you feel the dissonance but he writes to inform your mind but also to arrest your heart and we feel this right away don't we you felt it when it was read today he utilizes primarily poetry and here in chapter one the teacher sets the stage for the entire 12 chapters of what life is like outside the garden of eden what he will describe with another repetitive phrase, I want you to watch through this series, and it's repeated over and over again, life under the sun. Like Havel, meaningless, 38 times, under the sun is listed 29 times in the book. Okay, so just keep that in mind as we dive in. You'll have a greater understanding of the book. Okay. The human strivings outside the garden, lived under the sun, he tells us right away, are enticed by three mirages of meaning that we chase after. These mirages of meaning are progress, satisfaction, and understanding. So let's take a brief look at them as we begin to frame the book. First, mirages of meaning we chase. Number one, progress. But that escapes us. Look at verses three through seven. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil, there it is, under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets. It hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. What is life like under the sun? He wants us to know right away with our human experience, it's repetitive, it's cyclical, round and round it goes, like <laughs> the laundry, right? Or washing dishes, it's wash, rinse, and dry all over again, day after day. One of my favorite movies, yeah, I know some of you know, like, uh-oh, here, what's he going to say, right? It's like, one of my favorite movies, certainly one of my favorite actors is Bill Murray. You know about What About Bob? I've talked about What About Bob, how brilliant movie that is. But, <laughs> some of you are laughing. But Groundhog Day is a great movie, isn't it? Right? If you've not seen it, you should. It's just, it's great. But it's a story, if you've not re re seen it, about this weatherman. His name is Phil Connors, and uh, he's played by Bill Murray, of course. Weatherman Phil Connors goes to Puxotwani. Pennsylvania for the great Groundhog Day festivities. But what makes this movie great is he's stuck in a time warp. <laughs> you know that. Each day is repeated over and over again. Every morning alarm rings, the day starts over and over again. And, and it's a comedy, of course. 
but actually it's rather profound. Uh, believe me, it's true. Uh, it speaks to the human experience. And in the movie, there's actually a few profound lines. One of which two residents of Puxatawani, Pennsylvania, Phil confronts them and talks to them. And he says, basically, if they'd understand what it like to be stuck in a place where he was, nothing they do ever matters. Nothing they do ever matters. And this is where the ancient teacher of Ecclesiastes has us in the 21st century. On the road to reality, it's raw. Not only is life repetitive and cyclical on Monday, right? It feels like we're taking one step forward and one step back. Recently, I was at a conference in San Diego. I was suffering for Jesus, I know, but uh, Liz was with me. We were walking on the beach one afternoon after the meetings were over, of course. Uh, and uh, I saw these children on spring break, you know, on the beach, the beach is packed with all these fantastic families, and they're building these sandcastles. I mean, this work of art with the drawbridge and everything, it's like they'd spent all day, it's late afternoon. I mean, this place, it was big, beautiful, amazing. Well, I ran the next morning on that same beach, and you know what happened. The presence and masterpiece of these children, as amazing as it was, was completely gone. The tide came in, the presence and achievement was, there was not a trace there. This is what the Ecclesiastic writers, Ecclesiastic writers is, is painting for us. Our lives are transitory, they're short-lived. Our achievements, how important they are, are really not that lasting. They're forgotten quickly after we die. In verse four, notice, generations come and go. Generations come and go. That is like walking through a cemetery, huh? And it's a good exercise, actually. We're reminded that generations before us have come and gone and how very short our temporal lives are. And that we will join them soon. The lasting legacies that we all long to leave will probably not be that lasting. Another place to get the Ecclesiastes perspective is junkyards or landfills or trash. We used to call them trash dumps. I don't know if we call that anymore. But they have a way of clarifying a lot of our life. They put life under the sun in perspective, don't they? We are reminded of the things we build. Again, this is good and important. But when we build them, whether they're empires, whether they're buildings or businesses or beautiful homes or things we treasure, will in time become obsolete, will crumble. And one day, much of that will find its way into landfills and junkyards. Right? We have deeply treasured these things. But one day, they will probably be someone else's discarded trash. We long for a sense of permanence and progress, for leaving a lasting mark, but it escapes our grasp. We also chase another mirage. Notice where the writer goes. And that is satisfaction. Look at me at verse 8. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear of its fill of hearing. In other words, we just can't seem to get enough satisfaction, right? Although we try and we try and we try and we try. We need, there's so many boomers in this room. We need just one more of the success or recognition or achievement, right? How many of us have experienced the sense of satisfaction, right? But this deep letdown after we got that big A we worked so hard for, that test, right? Or the closing of that big sale we worked so long for, or that healed relationship or that athletic performance, like winning the championship trophy, like go Jayhawks. 
But even though we've done it, we want another ring. We want another trophy. It's not enough. Harvard professor Arthur Brooks um, is a remarkable person. And uh, he used to lead the American uh, Business Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. He's written wonderful books, recently a great book I really referred to uh, in an earlier message, but he wrote an Atlantic article, and this is the article. It is fantastic. It's How to Want Less. The subtitle is The Secret to Satisfaction Has Nothing to Do with Achievement, Money, or Stuff. And he points out how this problem is universal. Here's what he says. Let me give you a little appetizer of his good work. He says it's so simple, and yet its power is deeply encoded within us Give a three-year-old the french fry she is reaching for and see her satisfaction expression. But then, after a couple of seconds, watch the wanting return. And that's the actual problem, isn't it? The Stone song should really have been titled, I Can't Keep No Satisfaction. And he writes this, it's almost as if our brains are programmed to prevent us from enjoying anything for very long. Hmm. Brooks gets us, doesn't he? Our desires and longings have no ceiling. There's always another movie to watch, a new place to see, right? Right? An experience we long to have, a new meal to try, a new hobby to learn. It may be satisfying for a moment, but it wears off quickly. Oz Guinness, who's such a wonderful cultural observer and has been a friend of Christ's community for a long time, captures the weariness and meaningless of our modern world, the haunting dissatisfaction that taunts us. Oz brings to our attention the dripping irony that we as moderns have so much to live with and so little to live for. And this is inevitable because a modern world that dismisses God and lives within the suffocating confines of a mere temporal horizon is mired in meaninglessness, stuck with nowhere to go. It's like we are on a treadmill going nowhere, and we're trying to outrun our emptiness. We chase after the mirage of progress, the mirage of satisfaction. Notice where he goes next. The next mirage is the mirage of knowledge or intellectualism or understanding. As good as this is, this too will evade us. Look at verses 12 through 14. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the sun or under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after wind. Eugene Peterson, as I alluded before, has a wonderful grasp of the Hebrew text, and he, he frames it like this in his paraphrase, I have stockpiled wisdom and knowledge, and it's spitting into the wind. That's it. Simply chasing after wind. Ecclesiastes is confronting us here with the paradox of human knowledge. Isn't it true in our experience? Whatever discipline or knowledge we learn and gain, the more we know, we quickly realize there is so much we do not know. We never even imagined that was there. I love to hike in the Rockies. And uh, one of my greatest achievements, can I just brag for a minute? Some of you have done a lot of 14ers. But I did a 14er called Mount Holy Cross. It was awesome. But I'll never forget standing on top of that 14,000-foot summit. And you could see for miles and miles and other mountains, I could not even begin to imagine were there. 
when I was in the valley. Human knowledge is like that. Summit, as you get more and more knowledge in any area, you begin to see things you never imagined were there. You begin to realize how much you do not know. And this is what the writer is reminding us. Progress escapes us, you bet. Satisfaction eludes us, poof. Understanding evades us. And he says, these are signs. We are now living under the sun. But these signs are not to depress us. They are written to point us in another direction, to another time horizon, simply not limited by time, to another ultimate reality. They point us to life over the sun, where human meaning can only be found. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant Oxford former atheist, writes, if I find in myself a desire, whatever that desire is, put it, plug it in. Let's use meaning, which no experience in this world can ever satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. Although we were born in time, we were born for more, more than time. And let me give you just a glimpse in chapter 3 as we get there in verse 11. We hear the echoing of wisdom's eternal time horizon. Or should I say more correctly, eternal timeless horizon. That text says God has made everything beautiful in its time. And then the writer says he has set eternity in the hearts of everyone. Like Lewis, Edvard Monk also points us in this direction. What a contrast. His 1909 painting is quite a contrast from the screen. It's called The Sun. And scholars of his work tell us that he is giving to us on the canvas a sense of hope, a picture of God, the source of all life and meaning. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 reminds us that life under the sun is smoke. It's merely chasing after the wind. It is pointless. It is meaningless. But as we will see in the book, there is life over the sun. And we are going to explore this question in greater detail and depths where we live on our Monday worlds every day in the weeks ahead. And I want to encourage you this week, won't take long, read the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes as we embark across our campuses and our broader church family in this brilliant book. And if you haven't picked up the Life Up in Smoke journal, that will help you as well. Engage with us. This is a remarkable book, incredibly relevant to our lives. So how should we live in these fleeting moments of our temporal lives? Now, again, please don't misunderstand this. The book of Ecclesiastes is built on the book of Genesis, which says all of the material world is good. This is not a denial of good, the goodness of material reality, but this is emphasizing that the temporal material world and the work of our hands, however good it is, is not enough. It points us to the ultimate reality, to live for and before someone who is ultimate, our creator and redeemer. So as we begin this exploration of Ecclesiastes, let's begin with some questions. Probably the most important question I have challenged my heart with this week is, where is the passion of my heart aimed? Where is the passion of your heart aimed today? Are you striving for some what? Or are you reaching for some who? 
Are you striving for some what? Or are you reaching for some who? Christian psychiatrist Kurt Thompson, who was here this past fall with Christ Community, brilliant psychiatrist, Christian author, reminds us, as humans made in the image of God, we are meaning-seeking creatures. And he probes not only theology, but interpersonal neurobiology when he makes this profound statement. that You and I arrive in the world reaching for the one who is reaching for us. We arrive in the world reaching for the one who is reaching for us. This is what Ecclesiastes points us to, the one reaching for us. We are invited to know and be known by him. And the meaning we long for is not found in progress, achievement, satisfaction, or knowledge, as good as they may be. But meaning is found in a relationship with our eternal creator and redeemer. Ecclesiastes, yes, starts on a rather provocative, sober note, doesn't it? It does. But it ends on an amazingly upbeat note. That a life of meaning is a Godward-focused life, a with-God life, daily experienced in a God-bathed world. Ecclesiastes builds to its last two verses, chapter 12, verses 13 through 14, and it gets to a meaningful life's bottom line. Now all that has been heard is this. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandment. For this is the duty of all mankind, for God will bring every deed into judgment, everything hidden, whether it is good or evil. This is profoundly good news. Life under the sun is smoke, but there is life over the sun, and it's found in the sun. The life over the sun has been made possible by our Lord Jesus, his sinless life, his atoning death, his death-defeating resurrection. What we're going to learn is that Jesus doesn't just make progress. He remakes all things. Jesus doesn't just give you satisfaction. He himself is satisfaction. He is the fullness of joy. Jesus doesn't just give you wisdom. He is wisdom. The word made flesh. And in deepening intimacy with Jesus, we find our heart's deepest longing. A longing for a life of meaning, purpose, joy, now, and yes, for all eternity. Life under the sun is smoke, but there is life over the sun, and it is found in the sun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it speaks into the depths of our Monday reality. And thank you for the hope it gives to us. So, Spirit of the living God, speak into us, to our hearts, to our minds. Bring transformation to our lives and to our Monday world. In Jesus' name, for his praise and his glory. Amen.